Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 79, Alone with the Alone, Numenius's Metaphysics. We never meant to do a whole episode on Numenius's metaphysics. We're just going to do a single Numenian episode covering perennialism, esotericism, the significance of his thought for later esotericism, and a quick run-through of his metaphysics for the hardcore Platonism heads out there. But the inevitable occurred. The stripped-down metaphysical picture we were painting was growing and growing, bloating our episode out of all proportion. But it was still nowhere close to doing justice to the fascinating and crucial thought of the Sage of Apamea. And so, here we find ourselves. For listeners who aren't hardcore lovers of esoteric, Platonist metaphysics, what the hell is wrong with you? No, seriously, for those listeners, there are a couple of reasons why you should probably bite the bullet and listen to this episode, even though you are not necessarily a diehard fan of metaphysics. One, the kind of stuff Numenius was doing metaphysically is the kind of stuff the Gnostics and Hermetists were, in a way, doing metaphysically. And the Christian theologians and Islamicate theologians and the Renaissance Neoplatonists, etc., etc. In other words, your frame of reference for a whole lot in Western esotericism will be richer if you have some grounding in the thought of Numenius and the kind of thought world we're talking about here. Numenius may be our best example of this kind of thought world surviving from Middle Platonist philosophy. It's not that Numenius is the most crucial thinker for these contemporary currents of thought, nor for later esotericists, most of whom actually didn't know Numenius's work except via Plotinus. But Numenius is certainly an important and representative thinker in terms of the kind of metaphysics which will become, as it were, mainstream in later Western esotericism. And more specifically, this is reason number two, you want to listen to this episode, you won't understand Plotinus, one of the most important thinkers for the Western esoteric tradition, we say that with no hyperbole whatsoever, well, let's say you'll understand Plotinus a little bit better if you've warmed up with some Numenius beforehand, especially as Plotinus himself did just that, being an avid reader of the man from Apamea, but one who took his thought in new directions. Now, before we get into Numenius' metaphysics, a few prolegomena are in order. First of all, we don't understand nearly everything about Numenius' metaphysics. Even if we had all his writings, there would probably be some controversy here. But we don't have more than a small fraction of his writings. In this episode, we're going to try to reflect this state of affairs by being very conservative in our treatment. There are plenty of scholars out there who would be quite happy to go much further in interpreting Numenius than we are going to. A second prolegomenon regards sources. The people who cited Numenius did so for their own reasons. Most of our direct quotes come from Christian writers, especially Eusebius, who wanted to use the man from Apamea as a kind of apologetic mechanism for understanding and explaining how Christianity is in fact either in accord with the best in Greek philosophy, or even that Christianity is the best in philosophy and that the Greeks got it right sometimes, especially in the context of the question of Trinitarian theology. We have, however, much more of Numenius sort of hidden within the doctrines of later traditional Platonists. This is certainly true in the case of Plotinus, most likely so in a lot of others as well. But it's so much harder to figure out what's Numenian and what isn't in cases like this. 
So we should be relying rather too much on the direct quotations from Christians, and a whole lot more Numenius is out there than we're letting on in this episode, and some of it's almost certainly lying around unnoticed in the pages of later Platonists, but we don't know for sure that it's Numenian in a lot of cases. Or maybe, in some cases, we don't recognize it at all, because we don't have enough direct quotes from Numenius to say for sure what he taught on a number of subjects. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into it. I'll say in advance that this will be an inadequate treatment of the subject, because Platonist metaphysics, and Numenius is a serious metaphysician. He makes Plutarch look like a dabbler. This is the kind of stuff that would supercharge metaphysics and theology into late antiquity and beyond. Platonist metaphysics is never easy to treat in a straightforward fashion. A word of warning here. For listeners who have not listened to our episodes on Plato and do not know the father of Western esotericism's works, this episode will probably be unintelligible or nearly so. But if you do not have some familiarity with Plato, you will never really get Western esotericism, and that's that. So be sure to check out Plato if you haven't done already. And another important point, whenever we approach ancient Platonists, not Plato anymore, but interpreters of Plato in later centuries, we need to get into the habit of thinking in terms of immaterial realities. Most of reality, in fact, is immaterial. Nous, or intellect, or divine mind, or whatever inadequate term of translation we look for, nous is immaterial and exists outside of time and space. To a modern way of thinking, this might make it sound sort of ghostly or unreal compared to desks and anvils and bicycles and other solid stuff. To a Platonist, the exact opposite is true. Anvils and desks are mere fluff, doomed to perish sooner or later and bound by the passage of time. The noose, by contrast, is not temporally eternal. In other words, it doesn't just exist forever. It's outside of time and space altogether, a kind of eternity beyond eternity. And the same goes for the soul and for the forms and for anything else that a Platonist thinks about that is truly real. And these immaterial realities are where truer being, truer life, truer existence is to be found. Down here on earth, what we are looking at that seems so solid is ghostly imitation. Okay, have you got your immaterial hypostasis thinking fired up and at the ready? Let's begin. There are three primary gods. Numenius is very happy to speak of his principles of reality in personalized form and impersonal form in pretty much equal measure depending on the context he's writing in. So the first god may be called the good, to agathon, which is neuter in Greek, making it an impersonal it, or may be called the father or the king, making him a he and rather personified or theistic. Proclus, in fact, takes Numenius to task for this in his commentary on the Timaeus of Plato. Proclus says, quote, Numenius proclaims three gods. He calls the first father, the second maker, and the third product. Incidentally here, this sounds better in Greek. For father, we have pater, and then we have poietes and poema. So we have all these pater, poietes, poema, like a nice tricolon with uh, assonance on the p sound. Resuming our quote, for the cosmos, according to him, is the third god, so that, according to him, the demiurge is double, the first god and the second, and the creation is the third. It is better to speak in this way, rather than the way he puts it, overly dramatizing, grandfather, son, grandson. End of quote. 
Now, Proclus seems to have got Numenius's metaphysical scheme wrong in important ways. The Demiurge was not the first and second gods in one, it was the second and third god in one, as we shall see. But his point, that there are three gods for Numenius, and that Numenius would have been better to talk about them less anthropomorphically, and in a more clinical, philosophical style, is taken. Numenius's three primary gods are all, in some sense, noes. That is, each one is a divine nous, or mind of some sort. An atemporal, perfect, cognizing entity. And they are all, in some sense, one, or a series of emanations from an absolute monadic source. Hence the use some Christian authors would make of Numenius later for trying to figure out how their Trinitarian theology was supposed to work. When you start to get into this problem of one and many in metaphysics, and how something one can also be three, a good man to turn to, apparently, was Numenius. So the first god is a noose, as we've said, but a noose which does not do anything. In other words, a non-noetic noose. Plotinus in Ennead 6-7 and elsewhere will attack this doctrine as a contradiction in terms, but we'll get to that in due course. The highest god is also the good, the source of all goodness in the universe. This is what Numenius is discussing in his On the Good, from which we have some nice chunky quotes preserved by Eusebius. It or he, and he flip-flops between the two different descriptions, is hidden, unknown, unsayable, and perfectly simple. He's, well, actually, let's just quote from Fragment 2, preserved by Eusebius. We can grasp the concept of corporeal entities by drawing analogies from similar objects and from characteristics inherent in things at hand, but there is no means whatever of conceiving the good from anything at hand, nor in turn from an analogous sense object. But it will have to be as if someone situated on a high vantage point were to spot, with one keen glance, a small fishing boat, one of these single light craft, alone, solitary, cradled between the waves. In this way must one, after going far from sense objects, have converse with the good, alone with the alone. There, where there is neither any person nor any other living thing, no corporeal object, large or small, but rather a divine solitude, absolutely indescribable and ineffable. There, the abodes, haunts, and splendors of the good are found, and the good itself, the gentle sovereign one, graciously seated above essence. Now, sharp listeners will recall that the form of the good in Plato's Republic, the master form, from which all the other forms get their definition or reality or intelligibility. Interpretations vary here because Plato is being very mysterious in the passages where he discusses the form of the good. This supreme form is described fatefully as beyond being or essence, epekena tes usias, which Numenius has poetically paraphrased as graciously seated upon essence. As we've already seen in various Platonist contexts, the later tradition wasn't really happy with the form of the good being a form. They wanted the good to be transcendent of everything, even the forms. So in Numenius, as we shall see in Plotinus, the form of the good has simply become the good, and so it will remain in the Platonist tradition. Now, this god, the good, is above essence, usia, 
in Greek, but is also described elsewhere as toon, being, that is, being itself, the raw nature of existence or reality, in which anything which exists, anything which has being, must participate. So Numenius is taking a stand here on the question of whether the first principle is beyond being or not. We've seen it's beyond essence, but he's clearly drawing a distinction between the linked concepts of being and essence, toon and usia, and saying that the good is beyond usia, but is itself pure being, toon. Now, Numenius also describes the good in the masculine as hoon, he who is. Now, this happens to be the Septuagint Greek form of God's self-identification in Exodus 3.14, the whole burning bush incident where uh, Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am that I am in the King James translation. But in the Greek, he says, Ho'on, I am he who is. Now, Numenius uses this rather Jewish sounding, but anyway, very theological usage. And this has sparked a minor scholarly industry speculating on why Numenius uses this particular terminology. Is he a Jew like Philo? who also uses this name for God. In fact, this is one of Philo's go-to epithets for God. Is he just really into the wisdom of Moses as an eclectic, esoteric Platonist who constructs a lineage involving Moses and other uh, barbarian sages? It's perfectly normal to think he might be reading the, the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, and taking good theological stuff from there. Or is this perhaps not a biblical reference at all, but just a normal Greek way of making Plato's neuter being into a masculine, more theistic god figure? Or maybe the text is corrupt, and he doesn't say ho'on at all, as Dodds has theorized. Listeners are going to have to decide for themselves. There may well be some biblical influence here. As we've seen, Moses for Numenius is a top-level sage and teacher of God's immateriality and so forth. And we can be pretty sure that Numenius had read at least some of the Jewish texts in their widely available Greek translation. But I think it's a dead end to try to state for sure why we have this masculine name or epithet of God in Numenius. I think probably he's just drawing together the traditions using a masculine name for a platonic formulation because he's tempted to call the good the father and so on anyway. So it kind of just fits his general approach. But that's only my hunch. Don't quote me on it. Now, The first god is described with some serious language of transcendence, as we saw in that quote earlier, and is present elsewhere. He's ineffable. He is alone, isolated, abandoned. Mankind doesn't know him. They know only the demiurge who is produced from him. So he's a kind of uh, secret. There's a lot in Numenius' treatment of the good stroke first god, which looks like a move toward a seriously ineffable, unknowable first principle. And this is very important for Western esotericism. Why? Well, God is beyond our ability to speak of or say, but was he accessible in some other way, say through a refined highest noetic consciousness, like the flower of noose from the Chaldean oracles? Something like this, I think, is Numenius' model, although we don't have a surviving methodological statement from him telling us exactly how we might reach the first God or comprehend him or otherwise come into direct contact with him. Nevertheless, As we shall see in this episode, there's a lot of hints in that direction. Now, such a privileged mode of consciousness or of being towards God is a normal feature of Middle Platonism and usually involves the faculty of nous, as in Philo and Plutarch. And since Numenius' first God is a nous, this in principle 
would give us high hopes that some elect few might be able to refine their noetic consciousness to the point of accessing this hidden primary reality. We've also seen, of course, the higher faculty of the flower of Nous in um, the Chaldean oracles, which is probably something analogous. But we don't know. Perhaps Numenius really left his first god all, quote, alone, isolated, abandoned, end of quote. Or perhaps, speculation warning, perhaps he posited something precisely analogous to the flower of noose or flower of fire that we find in the oracles, or of the soul's noose, which in Philo allows the human being to soar up and come into the presence of his creator. If not actually knowing him, no one can do that for Philo. At any rate, we certainly find a serious amount of energy devoted to describing the undescribable encounter with the good in Plotinus, a great follower of Numenius, as well as of the unnameable faculty through which this encounter takes place. For Numenius, we can't be quite as certain as we can with Plotinus, but, but as we shall see, it does seem that Numenius did think there was an encounter waiting for the philosophic adept. At any rate, this is a good place to point out why such a hidden first principle or god is so important to esotericism. The mere positing of such a hidden god actually makes reality itself esoteric, if you think about it. Only the elect can truly know. If Numenius thought that even the elect couldn't know, that God was truly and forever transcendent, well then, it's not esotericism so much as resigned agnosticism or just a kind of admission that we humans are pretty limited. But this isn't what we tend to find in Platonism. We usually find an esoteric reality, a reality that's accessible through special means by the philosophic elite. And this is true even in Philo, who says we fall short of actually attaining to the Godhead, but we still have a, a vision of light um, in the presence of God, which is certainly a kind of revelatory experience. So again, I'm putting my money on a transcendent noetic faculty in Nomenius. One, however, which we have no really, really solid evidence for. Stay tuned in our episode on the rise of ineffability and transcendence in the middle Platonist milieu, when we shall return to this and other important instances. Meanwhile, the first god gives rise to a second god. Another noose, but this time one which does noetize, which does exercise noesis, an active noose. What does he noetize? What are his thoughts, as it were? The forms, of course. And these may come from the first god. This is a tricky point. But at any rate, the forms are within the demiurgic noose, so they are thoughts in the mind of God, as it were, like we saw in Philo with his idea of the Logos. So this second noose is Plato's demiurge. He creates the world by imposing the forms on matter. But as in the oracles, a higher principle beyond the demiurge has been added, a truly transcendent first god who is the source of all reality, but himself remains still in splendid isolation and perfect oneness. As you'll recall in Plato's Timaeus, gentle listener, the demiurge gets to work on forms that he just finds lying around, and we don't really know how they got there or how he got there. Plato doesn't go that, back that far in his ontological story, but um, later Platonists were concerned to do so. Now, gentle listener, you may be asking, what do you mean the first god gives rise to the second? Are we talking about creation? Are we talking about emanation? Or what? We are talking, gentle listener, about something called 
undiminished giving, which is a very important doctrine, even a kind of dogmatic truism in much later Platonism. So the idea put over simply is that a being of a higher ontological nature, let's say being itself in the form of the first god, such a being will necessarily give rise to other beings, which will be ontologically lower in the scale of reality to it. It will do this automatically because its perfection and goodness is such that it's just productive by nature. Realities give rise to other realities because they are perfect and their perfection and goodness and structured nature, their their ordered nature, just does that. And here's the undiminished part. The being that giving rise to the other being will not itself suffer any diminution or lessening through this process. So imagine the light from a light bulb or from a candle, as Plotinus later puts it. It streams out from the flame, but the flame doesn't somehow disappear because lots of light is coming out of it. So this is an image for the way realities stream out from realities, but the givers are not diminished through their giving. We can call this process emanation, as it's often called, but it's important to grasp what's going on in a bit more detail. Note that this process is eternal. We're not talking about something that ever happened. We're talking about something outside of time altogether. And we're talking about something iterative. The demiurgic intellect, having been emanated, will then go on to give rise in turn to the third god, which gives rise in turn to the cosmos, where we find ourselves. And the cosmos is the lowest reality there is, and so the process stops here. Now back to the demiurgic noose. Before we say more about him, let's look at Numenius's idea of matter for a moment. With matter, Numenius does something interesting. Followers of Plato's oral teachings among our audience know that the first principles of reality are a monad and an indefinite dyad. See episode 25 for this material. So just about every Platonist system will make some use of monad and dyad themes. And this is especially true of ones who, like Nemenius, see themselves as in some way Pythagorean and so are especially interested in the monad-dyad pairing because we find it as a major theme in the Neo-Pythagorean authors like Moderatus and Eudorus. Now, Numenius associates the dyad with matter, a bold move, and this may mean that he saw matter as co-eternal with the good, like the Cora of Plato's Timaeus, which is just sort of there when the demiurge gets to work. It's certain that anyway, that Numenius's matter is certainly to be identified with Plato's Chora, because he makes this explicit. Plotinus will later make the demiurgic noose himself the dyad, because he rates matter as the lowest of the low, not even a reality really. But not so Numenius. His matter is really a fairly exalted prima materia, sort of stuff rather than a kind of hungry void like it is in Plotinus. Now, the relationship between the second and third gods of Numenius is a matter for a lot of debate, because although we have strong statements that Numenius maintained a doctrine of three gods, we saw some of it in the previous episode, where Numenius was especially insistent that the teaching of the king of all passage from Plato's second letter was a teaching of three gods, which was according to Numenius, a Pythagorean doctrine that Socrates and Plato got from the Pythagorean tradition. It's often difficult to tell his second god from his third god, and the two seem so intertwined in some passages that you could be forgiven for thinking that Numenius 
maintained a two-fold metaphysics of the first god, stroke father, stroke the good, and second god, stroke active noose, stroke demiurge. Take this quote from fragment 11, also from the book on the good. Quote, the first god who exists in himself is simple, because being completely self-contained, he is never divisible. However, the second and third gods are one, and coming into contact with matter, he unifies it, but is divided by it, since it possesses a passionate character and is continually flowing. End of quote. One possible interpretation here is that the demiurgic noose, when he comes into contact with the dyadic matter, and remember this is all happening outside of time and space, so when I say when he comes into contact, I mean he has already come into contact from our perspective in the temporal world, or he is eternally coming into contact, whatever. Anyway, when he comes into contact with the dyadic matter, whether this dyad or principle of multiplicity or whatever it is, is a product of the first god coexistent with the first god, like Plato's Cora in the Timaeus, which is just there, or what have you. Anyway, it's there, the demiurge comes into contact with it, and at this point the second noose is split. As you might expect encountering a metaphysical dyad, he actually splits into a second and a third noose. The first of the two, the demiurge proper, faces toward the highest god and the immaterial forms and exercises noesis. And the third god, looking toward the cosmos and the world of coming to be where we mortals live, exercises discursive thought. For listeners familiar with the thought of Plotinus, the third god is a lot like Plotinus's world soul. But this for Plotinus is a soul, not a noose. Very important distinction. Numenius' third god is a noose, and is the god who actually imposes the forms onto matter here in the cosmos. So he's really the demiurge par excellence in the sense of creator of this world. Like Plotinus's hypostatic soul, he emanates from the second god, which is a noose in both cases, though Plotinus's world soul is not split by an encounter with matter, but rather noose emanates soul by necessity, and then soul emanates the world soul, individual souls, and so forth. Anyway, now the third god in Numenius is also distinguished from the second by the form of consciousness which they exercise. The demiurgic noose remains in a state of eternal noesis, turned back toward and contemplating the first god, his source, and also contemplating the forms within him. But the third god, as it were, looks downwards toward the cosmos and thinks discursively. His thinking or cognition taking place sequentially in time. Also, like Plotinus's world soul, the third god of Numenia seems to be astral, or to dwell in the heavens. We're told in fragment 12 that, quote, the first god is devoid of any activity whatsoever and is king, while the demiurgic god rules as he moves through the heavens. Now let's continue with this quotation, which is from Numenius's On the Good, cited by Eusebius, because it's relevant for our understanding both of the second and third gods, and the way in which they're sort of a single god differing depending on where they place their attention more than anything else. And also tells us something about the possibility of humans exercising noose and perhaps a higher contemplation of the first god, the king. So we're still talking about the demiurgic god who moves through the heavens, which I take it is meant to refer to the third god, though he has not made a distinction between second and third gods here. 
Quote, And it is through this one that we, too, have our journey. When intellect is sent below along a path to all those who have been allotted a share in it. Therefore, when God looks and turns himself towards each of us, it happens that the bodies live and are sustained by the rays of God. But when God turns back toward his own vantage point, they are extinguished while intellect continues to live, enjoying a life of bliss. End of quote. So note here how Numenius is speaking as though the second and third gods are one god, which generates the temporary beings here in the cosmos when he turns towards them and looks, but which, when he turns to his, quote, proper vantage point, that is, gazing at the first god and the forms, then the temporary beings, such as humans, cease to exist. Now, we're surely not meant to see this as a process in time. Well, the demiurge looked away, so the world ends but more of an internal, timeless dialectic of pure noesis alternating with discursive consciousness, which accounts for coming to be and perishing in this world. Um, in fact, the attention of the third god toward our world, the looking down, would seem to be what makes this world exist at all. We note that the noesis of the higher demiurge, or second god, is eternal. Quote, intellect continues to live, enjoying a life of bliss, end quote. But we also note earlier in this quote that, quote, it is through this one that we too have our journey. Now, I'm reading this as a reference to the philosophic ascent, the journey up the chain of being towards the first principle, the king. So we do this through the demiurgic noose. Readers of Plotinus will be able to fill in some blanks here if they so choose and conclude that once we have identified with or become pure intellect, that is, become the demiurgic noose, then we will be able to join in its contemplation of the first. We don't have that laid out explicitly in Numenius, but knowing Numenius and knowing Plotinus, I think something along those lines probably was envisioned by Numenius. Now, this idea is supported by a few other points which survive in the sources and which have to do with Numenius's anthropology or theory of what a human being is. So, as a Platonist, Numenius thinks that the human being is primarily a soul rather than a body and soul composite. The body can die, but the soul lives on and reincarnates. So it's when looking to define the key point of a human, you look to soul. In fact, we even have a bit of evidence as to how reincarnation works in Numenius. The souls travel astrally through various stellar bodies, the Zodiac and the Milky Way, passing in and out of the cosmos through gates located in different signs of the Zodiac. The whole schema draws on hints in Plato, but is really informed by the much more developed theories of Hellenistic astrology astronomy. Just as the movements of the heavenly bodies, which, let us remember, may be the movements of the third god himself, or at least may reflect the movements of that god, they may be the visible representation of his movements. Just as these affect events here on earth in a kind of astrological worldview, they're also sort of the machine or celestial clockwork through which the souls are processed between lives and the cycle of reincarnations moves according to astral rhythms. This is something that's very much hinted at in uh, Plato's Phaedrus, for example, but here we have real mechanics of how it's supposed to work and which uh, parts of the sky are important for what and this sort of thing. Now, there's an important testimony from Iamblichus in his Lost on the Soul, where Iamblichus, the sage of Chalcis, says, quote, Numenius appears to support a union and indistinguishable identity of the soul 
with its own principles. End of quote. Now, Iamblichus emphatically does not support this position, believing that once human souls have descended into bodies, they are really in some sense separated from the divine noose and the higher ineffable realities preceding the noose. More on this when we get to Iamblichus's theurgy. But while it's hard to interpret this fragment in any detail, it has been taken to refer to something like the theory of the undescended soul, which was Plotinus's signature trademark doctrine. In other words, the soul's primary nature is not just that of an individual human soul, whether embodied or disembodied. Its primary nature is the divine noose, and perhaps even potentially that of the first god himself, who is, after all, in Numenius, a noose. Now, how the details of this theory worked out in Numenius, it's impossible to say, and it might have been unclear in the original texts, which could account for Iamblichus's saying, quote, Numenius seems to support this idea. It may be that it's not entirely clear from Numenius whether he supports this idea. But that being said, it's also very difficult to make sense of the doctrine of the undescended soul in Plotinus. And Plotinus is very clear that this is what he maintains, that we are always within the noose. Our, our basic essence is noetic, in fact. But maybe the point that we can take away here is a kind of dichotomy that I'd like to draw between two very general ways of thinking about the soul and about human nature. A dichotomy which I think is helpful for interpreting trends in Western esotericism and Western thought more generally. On the one hand, we have the radically, let's call it optimistic, view of humanity, as supported by Numenius and Plotinus, perhaps also by the Chaldean oracles, certainly by at least some of the Hermetic writings, as we shall see, and in certain esoteric currents of Christianity. The idea that humans are, as it were, sparks of the divine fire, or at least of the same basic nature as the divine high principles, and thus able, in principle, to reascend back to their ontological source, to reunite with the divine, or in the case of Plotinus, simply to stop believing that we're separate in the first place, at which point we are there in the noose. We've also seen something like this in Stoicism, but since the Stoics place God within the cosmos and deny that there are transcendent realities, the dynamic in Stoicism is very different. Yes, we are sparks of the divine fire, the logos of the universe, but okay, what else would we be? The logos of the universe is in everything. Then there is another major take on this issue, which I would call the other side of our uh, dichotomy as supported by many Gnostics, by Iamblichus and Proclus, by the exoteric Christianity, more or less as a whole, that the soul, though of course it comes from God because everything comes from God, nevertheless, it's fundamentally separated from its divine source. It's a different sort of thing than the divine source. The first approach, what I'm calling the optimistic approach, makes humans potentially gods on earth or at least able to aspire to realize their innate godhood. The second can also allow for divinization of the human being, but not before a fundamental gulf between the embodied human soul and its primal origin is bridged somehow. Basically, some kind of escape is needed from the material world before you can get close to God. The dichotomy is oversimplistic and each of the different types of source we've alluded to in our last little sort of list has a different take on this matter and how it works. And for these thinkers, the differences really did matter. So I don't want to try to elide them all and say, well, 
the, the differences are just matters of detail. Really, they all thought the same thing. Quite the opposite. Nevertheless, it is maybe useful to think about these different approaches, perhaps as tendencies available to thinkers within the broad church of Platonistic philosophy and religion developing in, in the second century and beyond. It would seem that Numenius is an early and influential proponent of the optimistic branch of this dichotomy. He believes the soul is really unified with the higher noetic realities. We already are the noose. Now, we can back up this stripped-down quote from Iamblichus with another from Porphyry. We've seen some evidence for a doctrine of a double soul, a rational and an irrational soul, in the Chaldean oracles and definitely in Plutarch. But interestingly, we don't find this in Numenius. He does maintain that both rational and irrational souls exist, but it's simply that humans have rational souls and animals have irrational souls. For Numenius, the human soul is actually an immortal noose. So this may be what Yamlukas meant in his statement that the soul in Numenius is unified with its principles. In other words, all middle and late Platonists agree that a major principle of reality is a divine noose, and Numenius is just saying that the soul is also a noose. The question then becomes, to what degree is this noose, the human soul, assimilable to the divine noose of the demiurge? And perhaps beyond that, the divine noose of the Father himself. We can't say. But again, these doctrines about the soul seem to point us in the direction of a path upward for the Numenian soul, an ability to become one with its ontological ground in the hypercosmic noetic realm. And on that hypercosmic note, we should draw this episode to a close. We've hopefully given some idea of the contours of the thought of Numenius, and hopefully given everyone's metaphysical muscles a warm-up rinse-out before we start to approach late antiquity. This is a thought world of intense dialectical theorizing, drawing on a complex Platonist, Aristotelian, Neopythagorean fund of ideas, and we haven't really been able to get into these sources much at all in this episode, but listeners versed in this material will be able to recognize important themes. But Numenius also drew on sacred scriptures and other ideas from religions of various people, notably the Jews, and their Greek scripture, the Septuagint Old Testament. And his thought is also marked by an intense piety, which often shows through the argumentation like the sun blazing out from behind a cloud. Altogether, a fascinating thinker and one whose importance for Western esotericism should not be underrated. In fact, let's quickly go over some of the main points we've made that I think we should keep in mind about Numenius as we move forward in the history of Western esotericism. Number one, his thought is linked to that of the Chaldean oracles in some not entirely understood way. We've seen this in our previous episodes. So this makes him important for the development of theurgy in later Platonism. He posited a strongly transcendent first principle, very strongly transcendent, which he was also very happy to refer to in personalized terms drawing on religious modes. This approach to God, the good, being, the ground of reality, is one to which we shall return again and again in the course of this podcast, using strong apophatic language and at the same time referring to the reality with no name by a bunch of very familiar names like father and king and so on. His thought incorporated the physics or cosmology of the Hellenistic astrological science into his account of the soul and its fate after death, 
a move which would become something of a norm, not only in philosophic Platonism, but also Platonizing religious currents, and probably other interesting late antique religions like Mithraism, as we'll discuss when we get there. He held a very grand view of the human soul, human destiny, and the human ability to be divinized, or to realize its innate divinity. So, we in the podcast are moving toward a synoptic discussion of the rise of transcendence in Greek thought in the second century, that is, the rise of the idea that the ultimate principle or God or reality is beyond the sphere of human language or human thought to comprehend, is beyond the universe as we know it, beyond everything. And Numenius is a very important piece of this story. But before we can get synoptic, before we can discuss this kind of rise of transcendental thinking overall, we're going to need to look at some other strands of thought from our period, which also maintain doctrines of the highest, most hardcore ineffability and transcendence for their gods. The time has come, long-suffering and patient listeners, to come to grips with, wait for it, Gnosticism. And before we do that, we need to come to grips with the term Gnostic itself, a term so problematic that sometimes it seems like half the academic study of Gnosticism is devoted to arguing about whether or not we should use the term Gnosticism at all. It's not that bad, actually, but it remains the fact that Gnosticism is a very tricky term, and we need expert advice to avoid using it anachronistically, ahistorically, and falling into errors by just slinging it around willy-nilly. So before we delve into the mind-altering thought worlds of the great Basilides and the Valentinians, early Gnostics who will make your brain melt, we should discuss the whole idea of Gnosticism. And who better to discuss it with than Michael Williams, a man who wrote a serious and influential study of this very subject. Join us next time for Michael Williams on The Trouble with Gnosticism. And until then, stay, if not alone, isolated, and abandoned, at least esoteric. Esoteric.